you definitely can't plan for that or like there's no point to even truly strategize to like go viral. It's it's kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. And, and it's just all a question of like, are you ready to like then make it happen and capitalize on that and use that obviously as a platform to, to really start things. Summers as a kid were magic. The time when days had no end, nights brought in a balmy breeze, and Michigan Fest brought my favorite musical acts to my hometown. You might think that the highlight of the music festival was standing only a few feet from the Bengals or in a mosh pit watching the Goo Goo Dolls perform, but that's not what I saved my allowance for. I pinched my pennies all year so that I could splurge on the ice cream sandwiches that you could only get at Michigan Fest. I can still taste the thick, chewy chocolate chip cookies with soft vanilla ice cream in my mind. Even if you don't have a local music festival to remember, I think you can relate to the feeling of cold, sweet ice cream. So satisfying on a hot summer day. Are you craving ice cream yet? That's because nostalgia sells. And if you could use some inspiration about how to reach your audience on an emotional level, then this is your episode. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks. My guest today is Natasha Case, CEO and co-founder of Cool House, a mega-influential ice cream brand, which she started with her now wife, Freya. Natasha has been named to Forbes 30 Under 30 for her innovative takes on childhood classics and the way she is revolutionizing food design. Here's Natasha on how she makes a living. I am an ice cream lady. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cool House Ice Cream, and I have built the brand, uh, innovate the products, build the team, and I'm here to just create an ice cream empire. That's how I, that's how I make a living. Well, I know I'm based in LA where you began and where Cool House began. So it's a real exciting opportunity for me to talk with you because I watched the whole evolution of cool house from humble beginnings <laughs> to Very. to where you are right now and it's truly extraordinary what you have built. I want to talk about those humble beginnings though cuz that's where a lot of our listeners are. I found out a little tidbit. So cool house you started with a truck with an ice cream truck. And I found out that your truck Natasha didn't even actually operate at your first event that you sold ice cream sandwiches at. What the heck were you thinking? This is correct. <laughs> well, um, that is a good question. I don't know that there was uh, full thinking. It was more kind of, you know, um, I think maybe something of your 20s, like you're very much like in the moment, you know, like, well, well, what happens then? No, that's okay. We don't need to get to that. We just do it. My background's architecture. My co-founder came from real estate development and we, you know, wanted to kind of change the game, I think, for what was possible with ice cream, both from like a quality perspective, but also to like create a brand that we felt represented by as women, as queer women. We also had just started dating Frey as a woman of color, as millennials. You know, we saw this big opportunity to really be pioneering. And the only way that we could think of to even kind of crack into the market was very humbly, as you said, because we really didn't have any proper business experience, really any food experience. I had worked one catering job in college and gotten fired the next day, actually. <laughs> they said I appeared to be at the party, not working, you know, for the party. So that was, wasn't a great resume builder. But an experience builder, you created the party. 
with Cool House, right? <laughs> totally. Yes, right. They didn't, they really, you know, yes, exactly. I think they, you know, it's just, they weren't looking at it the right way, I guess. But <laughs> the only way we could really see to kind of capitalize on this moment, which we felt there was some urgency, like someone's going to do this, like it should be us, let's make this happen. We couldn't afford to open a scoop shop and the recession had just hit. So that seemed just way too risky. We didn't understand grocery, but we thought we can reinvent the ice cream truck for our generation. But the only truck we could even afford was a barely drivable postal van kind of masquerading as an ice cream truck with no engine, you know, bars on the windows. <laughs> it was just a, the POS, I like to say, and I don't mean point of sale. So we that, that's what we had, 2,500 bucks. That was our budget. We got it, chrome rims uh, on the truck, which is really what we were paying for. And then we needed a big event, like kind of go big or go home. And and we begged Coachella to let us sell there. They finally caved. It wasn't like this, like, um, great, like come and join the festival. It was like, stop bothering us and we'll put you some, we'll find somewhere to stick you, you know? And so then once Coachella rolled around and we had kind of barely gathered together what we needed to, you know, sell at the festival. Well, how are we going to get a truck with no engine from LA to the desert? I uh, figured out that if I got a AAA platinum membership, we got one free 200 mile tow. So they towed us to the festival and dropped us in the desert. And that was, that was really our launch. And we didn't even serve from that truck. We basically, you couldn't, the, the door wasn't operable. The windows weren't operable. It was just like, you could barely like charge a phone in there. You know, it was like, Pointless. The set piece. Yeah, it was like it was like an aspirational, like <laughs> we this is what we want if you can help us get there by buying some ice cream sandwiches now from this tent next door. <laughs> so you're in Coachella, you have a triple A toe and no way to get home <laughs> with this truck. You have a gang of ice cream sandwiches to sell, but what a great opportunity because I've never been to Coachella. Uh kind of embarrassed to admit that as an Angelino. Never been to Coachella, but I seem to think, I know the desert is a little bit hot. Was that also by design? Were you, how strategic was that planning? And then how quickly did the need meet what you were offering? I think there are a number of things. We had been to Coachella, so it's sort of seen, um, I think like maybe at the highest level, like what the festival had to offer in terms of the audience, I would say was probably like the biggest factors. Like this is where we're going to find our core following for what we're trying to build with this product and this brand. You know, you have like a lot of millennial at the time, LA migrating to the desert captive. I had actually worked at a friend's food booth a couple years before. So just had seen like what's possible, the volume, the kind of energy, the excitement that it could be this like really like launching pad, you know, the number of eyes on it. Definitely like the heat, of course, that plays a role in it, I think. There's some expendable income going on. If you can get to Coachella, you can also buy things there. There's some being in an altered state where you may be buying a lot of ice cream and eating all of it. <laughs> and that doesn't hurt. And I think, yeah, just the whole, the music, the whole, the whole experience of it, it just seemed like, and I think that's what it, it really intrigues me about, you know, building a brand and particularly ice cream that the, the memories, the emotions, the experience are so, it's such a, a food that just like conjures so much of that. And I think, kind of connecting it to the festival, especially at the time. I think things have evolved quite a bit with festivals in general, but we were able to sort of stand out a bit more. We were really the first food truck there and, and kind of, you know, make a splash or make a really maybe like make a dent would be a better, you know, truck uh, metaphor. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I think um, all, all of that kind of tied together seemed like, okay, this is, this will be a test of, you know, if this is going to work out and be something interesting, 
or if we need to kind of pack our bags and it didn't work out, it also wasn't like going to completely break us. Mm -hmm. And that's the true, I think like minimum viable product, you know, kind of mentality. Um, let's just start with what and see what's possible. And then if there's something to build, then, then we can grow it from there. So you did a few things, right? It sounds like you knew your audience very well. You're not just looking for Mm -hmm. hot people in the desert. I mean, hot people in the desert, but hot people. (laughs) And you're really fine tuning that you're looking for sort of millennials who might grasp this idea, this concept, and then share it. You're looking for people with disposable income. You're looking for people who want to add this to the experience. So it it really actually seems like you've dialed into a very specific audience. And this is really your big launch. So how'd it go? Yeah, no. And I think, by the way, you're right. And and part of what I think made that easier is like, there's an authenticity with our connection to the audience. Like we are the audience that we are selling to, you know, sort of like, oh, would we want this? We're those festival goers, you know, at the time. And a lot of brands that we buy, especially, I think, I think this has evolved quite a bit, but at the time it sort of felt like someone creating the brand for someone else, you know, and there's just a disconnect there. So yeah, it was a, it was a very close tie to the audience. It went well enough. Like we survived the weekend. You know, we made a few thousand bucks. We had spent nothing getting there. So really anything that we sold, we were kind of like in the black. There's a lot of exciting stories that came out of that weekend, especially because the rule at the time was you had to, um, they put us in the campground of Coachella and you had to like camp next to your kind of retail unit as part of the contract. So like having to like sleep in a tent. That's where I'm already out. Yeah. No, I know. This is like one of those things like only at this age, you know, because you like can't go to bed after the festival ends. Then everyone's having like a rave, like at their tent. We'd go to bed at like four in the morning. And then I would be like jolted awake. Someone saying like, oh, there's someone waiting for an ice cream sandwich at like seven in the morning. Oh so you're like gosh. complete zombie. Um, someone who had consumed a substance became convinced that there was no one in our tent and started lifting us up and carrying us around, even though we were screaming to put us down. <laughs> So a lot of interesting things happened like that. Did you have a website? Did you have a Facebook, Twitter? And what year is this? Were those things even necessary then? Yeah. So to the minimum viable product point, which I think that is something that we truly were like, took that very seriously. Like that was like our, you know, we're like chanting MVP, MVP. We were like, let's have everything, the absolute basic that we will need if this takes off what are we going to want to have? And like, check, check, check. So we did have a website, which was literally like four static images. I don't even know if you could click on things. It was like cool house, who we are, the menu and like where to find us. You know, we're going to be at Coachella, something like that, like four pages at a URL. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then, so I've had made a logo for that. We had earmarked twitter.com forward slash cool house, like in case, you know, like let's see in case we might've done Facebook too. Twitter seemed like that was like, okay, we're, we're like on this for like doing Twitter and for the truck, because that was super new at the time. I mean, if you think this is like early 2009, so that seemed like kind of avant-garde even just to have that. But we knew like that is how people were finding like the Kogi truck for the last couple of months, for example. So that seemed like a worthy venture. And I think like that was kind of it. What was good about Coachella is like we had to get like the seller's permit. You know, obviously we had to incorporate the business, um, which we did with LegalZoom. We did the whole thing for like 99 bucks. And they're not paying you to say that. (laughs) They're not paying me to say that, but they do. They do love what I do. They're lovely folks. They actually have a freezer uh, or no, they have a conference room at their Glendale office called Cool House. They have like different conference rooms named after 
some of their fave clients. So I just like learned that like a few years ago. I too used LegalZoom <laughs> actually, not to incorporate, but to do, oh, the trademark for my other podcast. And now we're in a LegalZoom commercial, uh, but it was super <laughs> easy. It was super easy. And I think sometimes people get stuck just speaking to the I Make a Living audience who's in that new phase. They get stuck with the breadth of what you could do to launch a business and yes. think it sometimes gets stuck in inaction because there are so many steps like to quote unquote, do it the right way or to do it how they are told or how they believe it needs to be done. But just kind of going back to your MVP idea also from like the legal and the back end setup standpoint, sometimes it's better to just figure out what do you absolutely need to get started? Totally. Yeah. I think also like um, for me, I'm, I'm kind of strangely, especially for like an architect, like not, not a perfectionist. And, and I, I think like achieving a true perfection, like you're never going to get there. It's all this like kind of tearing away at a more true or something more exciting or something closer, but like, it's always something in progress that you're building, like you're and really anything with the brand. And so I think a lot of people, it's like, even with the logo, it's like, well, this has to be perfect. Otherwise I can't do what I need to do. But first of all, no one cares, especially if you're new. And then you have a million opportunities to kind of build or reinvent because people do, especially in today's world, I feel like forget really quickly and, and are distracted by a million things. And not everything's about like being focused on you and what you're doing it would be better to, as long as it can like satisfy a necessity, you can put it out there and then you can see how people respond to it. Cause you'll never know in isolation, you're not going to be able to show it to enough people in your inner circle to have like a real read. Once you really get it out there is when you get an understanding, like, can people read what this says or do they, are they excited? How am I getting comments? Like, you know, is it making sense with the audience that I've attracted? So the only way to really know if something's working is, is to kind of test it. And then you can always improve and evolve from there. If you're hesitating to launch your brand, consider if you're making everything a little too complicated. Stop waiting for perfection. Just show up to the party and make some moves. After a whirlwind weekend at Coachella full of what we'll call product testing, and market research. They didn't make a lot of money, but they won something just as valuable. Buzz. Natasha's friend published an article about Cool House and Curbed LA, and the media took it from there. What was funny too, speaking of definitely not perfect, is the piece that my friend wrote for Curbed. It was like not even a very flattering piece. He was like, so there's this truck of former architects and they have like weird flavors. If you're really bored and like you want like, you know, strange puns, like maybe check it out or maybe don't. It was like, I read the piece. I was like, great. Like, thanks for that, Dan, you know. But it didn't matter because the appetite was so big for like this concept, I think making better products that are at once like familiar, nostalgic, but like more unique and with more like with real ingredients and all those things that were even more of a novelty at the time. There was such an appetite for it that it really blew up so that by the time we got home from the desert, we had 10,000 Twitter followers that day, which was, it seemed like a huge deal, especially there's no, you know, pay to play anything at the time. That is in like hours. Yeah, it is. Yeah. In fact, Freya was funny. She yeah. had a setting when we got, because we didn't even, we just like took the Twitter page and like, that was it. We didn't even like mess with the settings. Every time we got a new follower, she got an email. So her phone had died last day of Coachella and she charged it coming home in the tow truck that we used our insurance to tow us back. Cause now we could afford like a more proper insurance policy. And, and I called her to tell her I was getting like all these calls from editors because the curb piece went to Eater, Apartment Therapy, 
uh, dwell. I got a call from LA times. I mean, it was like the whole way home. I was fielding calls from editors. So I call Freya to tell her and she's like, Oh, I'm so glad you called. Like our Twitter account has been hacked and I'm getting emails every couple seconds with, you know, all these batches of new followers. I was like, no, like this is happening. This is blowing up like right now as we speak. That's an amazing thing. And you definitely can't plan for that. Or like, there's no point to even truly strategize to like go viral. It's, it's kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. And, and it's all a question of like, are you ready to like then make it happen and capitalize on that and use that obviously as a platform to, to really start things. And we had just enough of those minimums in place that I think we were, we immediately got the truck fixed up so it could drive and you could open the door and it said cool house on there. Again, the basics. Fancy moving up in the world. Yeah, it was super, super <laughs> fancy. Thank you, Junior in East LA, who did all of that work on the truck. And then we started going out and selling, but also started getting inquiries for, for catering. Our first inquiry to catering event was from MySpace, RIP. They wanted us mm-hmm. to do an ice cream social and they asked what it would cost. And we made up a number. We were like, oh yeah, let, let, one second. Let me put that in the system. Like, like what should we charge them? Like, you know, <laughs> I have to have my secretary call you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we just sort of started to build. That's the business we started to build that first year, kind of coming off the festival. So was the plan at that point, well, first of all, was there a plan beyond that? <laughs> We had, you know, I I forgot to say too, I mean, we had like a basic performa business model, very basic before starting Coachella, you know, top line, bottom line, variable, fixed costs, true fundamentals. So we had planned to take the truck out if things worked out at Coachella, but we really planned more like the vending, like stopping at bars when they were closing. And it shifted to way more of the private catering than we had ever like imagined. And again, that's a perfect example. You could make a business plan all day and have a million performas, but we didn't predict that that would be more the problem that we were solving. And it was, and it, that ended up being actually a, a better business that we still very much are focused on today. That's like 95% of the truck business is private catering. It makes sense because then you already have scale. You're not selling kind of one-to-one, you're selling one-to-many. You've mentioned a couple of times your architecture background. Natasha, I have to say, you have lived my dream life. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when I was younger much younger. I wanted to be an architect. I like flunked out of freshman year drafting in high school. So that never happened. But not only did you get to be an architect, you were an Imagineer at Disney. Dream job for you? Yeah. I mean, I I would say I, I thought it was. Architecture was a really cool thing to study. And I always kind of approached it with like this interdisciplinary mentality, like, okay, there's a bunch of different skills here that could be used for a bunch of different things. And, and that was always like exciting in school. And then, yeah, that was my my dream to then go to Imagineering. I was a second generation Disney girl. My mom was in animation there, actually. So I'd always kind of been around it and thought this would be so the cool. coolest. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge honor. And I still very much think of it that way to be on that team. Yeah. So that's what kind of sparked your interest in what you call architecture. Yes. <laughs> what is architecture? Architecture, food plus architecture. That was something I had developed actually when I was younger in college. One of my Berkeley professors in studio criticized a scaled model I had made saying it looked like a layer cake. And I was like, why is that bad? Layer cakes are delicious. And I baked the next iteration of the model as a cake. It was my only all-nighter in all of architecture school, which is another story. But um, when I presented it to my colleagues, I really saw like that, you know, bringing food into the conversation. It's just the memories, the emotions, the experiences of eating and like of sharing that moment are so special. 
And that was it for me. I was like, this is what I want to do. These are my two passions and, and I can bring them together. And that makes it even more unique and even I think more powerful as an idea. It was not a business to me at the time. So really more as like a concept, it seemed very powerful. And I played with this all through grad school also. And on my personal time, it was like a passionate hobby. And being at Disney, it was the kind of the perfect place to kind of like cut my teeth in, in terms of then maybe bringing that more into like a brand and a business. I, I sort of think of it like how a lot of um, tech startup founders, you know, come from obviously like the Google and the the really, you know, behemoth companies, because you learn the lay of the land and you realize that there's a lot that that has to offer, but how can that be forayed into like a very different kind of style of business, um, growing at a different pace, you know, with a maybe a much smaller organization, et cetera. Um, and Disney was that for me. I mean, they're like the master brand builder storytellers. Like they create stories and characters that we follow and love our whole lives. So I think I definitely learned a lot from that experience, but ultimately like that type of environment is not, you know, my most ideal. I definitely like the more kind of the startup and and high growth kind of really being connected to an idea that you have really being connected to um, something that you can go out and do. Obviously that's a much, much bigger process at a company like Disney. So even though it probably wasn't like really ever going to be a long-term fit recession or not, I still think you can get so much out of a place like that. And I still feel connected to it in that way. Was the recession what kind of kicked you off to say, I need to build something on my own? Is that a catalyst for you? Um, I want to say that it was more of, uh, my decision like that, but actually I I was part of a series of layoffs at the time that really inspired me to actually make the ice cream sandwiches because before it was me, um, a lot of, it was just very stressful at the office and a lot of, you know, my colleagues were getting bad news. And so as part of this food meets architecture, architecture concept started making ice cream sandwiches from scratch, naming the combinations after architects. And I would just give them to people to kind of lighten the mood there. And that's, I had, I've been doing that like maybe two or three weeks when I met Freya and she was like, this is such a quirky idea, but like could be a really interesting business. And that's what led us to kind of have that conversation and, and explore the category. It's a good reminder, Natasha, that, you know, sometimes these disappointments are really opportunities and it's just in how you're looking at it. And sometimes you can't see it, you know, of course, when you're in the the thick of it. So as a relationship coach, I have to ask you, how did that work building a relationship with Freya at the same time that you were, did you have any lines that you had to draw between those two or was your personal life and your business life always intertwined from the beginning? Definitely. It was a lot to take in at once. Um, They were completely intertwined really from day one. I mean, we say like Kulas is our love child, you know, the dating and the starting to work on this idea together are pretty much inseparable. I brought an ice cream sandwich to our first date, but it pretty much melted because I just brought it with like water ice and I needed dry ice to keep it cold. But Freya's, you know, more of the finance and ops side. So really needed each other, you know, right from the get-go to, for this to be possible. We didn't overthink it. And that could have definitely been a bad thing. I think we got lucky in a lot of ways. We didn't even really have an operating agreement that said that we were 50-50 until like two years in. I mean, could imagine how badly that could have gone. Yeah. If we'd just broken up, that would have been the end or disagreed about who, you know, should have more or anything like that. So I think in a lot of ways we did get lucky. And I definitely tell people like when you're starting a business with anyone you care about, it doesn't have to be your significant other. It could be a family member, a close friend, you know, you should plan for worst case scenario right away. 
and and really lay that out when you're on good terms as opposed to on bad terms and probably have some skin in the game, both of you, so that someone can't just walk away super easily. You know, like we, anyone could have just left also, you know, in those first few years and, uh, and the burden would have completely been on the other person. So I think we got lucky in that sense. But I think what was really working for us is that kind of getting to know each other separately, but also through the business was an amazing gift. I mean, first of all, Cool House is such a fun, joyful, like you're bringing so much like excitement and like kind of, yeah, like joy to people's day and and doing that together and growing that together. It was something incredibly romantic about it and it kind of taking off and, and like driving the truck to all these like cool places, like beautiful weddings in Ojai, like at sunset. I mean, it was just like learning about this person, you know, that's still, you know, I very much love and we're married and have two children. So, you know, um, spoiler alert, it all worked out, but it all worked out. It all worked out. It's just, that's easy. It just always works out. Yeah. It was just like such a great way to fall in love. And also I think accelerated a lot of things. It accelerated the business because we were always together. So we're always like hashing it out, talking about it, working on new flavors, thinking about what it could be and kind of like having those big dreams about it. And it, it accelerated the relationship because the business kind of allowed us to understand philosophical things about each other. And even if those were really intense arguments, it never felt as personal because you were like, okay, like Fran and I have very different like management philosophies, for example. So we would kind of hash it out through that, but it wasn't like, oh, you're, you know, you're stupid. You don't get it. It's like, well, this is how I think it should be done. Well, this is how I think it should be done. And the business almost was like this metaphor for like finding what we had in common, but also the differences and having almost like a, a little bit of distance from the issue to understand something that could be like a conflict. So I think that like really worked for us. You're talking about ice cream sandwiches, but you're like, yeah, not really talking about ice cream sandwiches. (laughs) Yes, I think so. I think that is a lot of what happened. And I think that worked until it didn't. Like after four years, Freya, I think had gotten like a little burnt out. There definitely was some resentment building. She always felt like I was doing the more fun stuff, you know, the marketing, the branding, the innovation, which it is really fun, but also really hard. But she just wasn't feeling as passionate about what she was doing. And it became really hard to separate the relationship and the business. You know, we we didn't have like a good boundary with that. So when it was time for her to move on, it was a good thing for everyone. We like to say like the brand has to be bigger than the relationship and the relationship has to be bigger than the brand brand. And in this case, it was, it wasn't like, oh, she's leaving the company. Now we're going to break up or we're going to break up if she doesn't leave the company. It never got to that, but it was definitely time. And, um, she's still, you know, we've, we've been in business now 13 years. So the last nine, she still knows every single major thing that's happened. I call her the first lady of cool house because she's not on the payroll, but you know, she has my ear and like controls me behind the scenes. So it's very much a, still a part of what we're doing. Just this is a much better way, I think, for us to have the, the best of both worlds, really. Don't try this at home, folks. Obviously, as a dating and relationship coach, I would not recommend it. However, if you do find yourself in a place where you're building a business with your boo, here are a couple hot tips from me to you. Number one, boundaries are important business talk can be sexy, but don't bring it into the bedroom. And number two, keep checking in and make sure that everyone is being taken care of emotionally. Here's what else we learned from Natasha today. MVP, 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 minimum viable product. You don't even need your ice cream truck to be operational. Just start where you're at. It's all about who you know. Leverage your contacts to get your business to the next level. Nostalgia sells. 
Which favorite memories from your childhood could inspire your brand strategy today? Cool House is now available nationwide in over 7,500 grocery stores from your neighborhood Whole Foods to Thrive Market. Make sure you check out their delicious, delicious, delicious new ice cream cones that come in both classic and dairy-free flavors. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture, your business, team, and clients. Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer for our listeners. And while you're at it, check out all of the resources made available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Arizmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shelvianueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I am Damona Hoffman, your producer and host. You can follow me at Damona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources because it's your business. We'll be back on Thursday with a nerd episode from Natasha.